Well, let me express again my thank you to the church for the invitation and for your generosity, kindness, love. Ridiculously huge gift basket full of all kinds of things. Uh, thank you for all of that. It's very, very thoughtful. You're a loving bunch, and uh, it's always a joy to, to preach for you. I do invite your attention this morning to the book of Matthew. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you would turn with me to the book of Matthew in chapter number 15, and we're actually going to pick up right where I left off last night, and I'd like to read in your hearing verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Here God's Word says, Jesus speaking, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And verse 20 really ought to just leap off the page at us. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case, no way, no how, enter into the kingdom of heaven. I have been tasked this morning with preaching on the subject of Christ, our righteousness. Christ, our righteousness. Our family moved to middle Georgia about nine and a half years ago. We didn't know anyone there. We didn't have family there. We simply moved there to pastor the good folks at Memorial Heights Baptist Church. And really, the only thing that we knew about the area was about 15 minutes north of us was Warner Robins Air Force Base, one of the largest employers in the state of Georgia. And in town, there in Perry, where the church is, there's a huge fairground and ag center that hosts all kinds of special events throughout the year, including the Georgia National Fair. So one day, very soon after we moved there, I was sitting at the house, Pat and the kids were gone, and as I'm sitting there, I hear this thunderous boom. Like, it was so loud it scared me. The windows in the house literally shook. I walked out the door and looked around, and I was halfway expecting to see a mushroom cloud ascending up into the heavens. I thought, we've been attacked. <laughs> we've been bombed. I picked up the phone and called the deacon there at the church and told him what happened and said, look, I, I'm kind of anxious. I, I don't know what's going on. And rather than showing me sympathy... He started laughing at me. And when he finally got through laughing, he said, Brother Lewis, what you heard 
was a sonic boom. And he went on to explain that at Robbins Air Force Base, some 15 miles up the road, service, the military folks there, they service fighter jets all the time. And part of what they do there at the Air Force Base is they tear down aircraft and rebuild them from the wheels up. And once it is completed, they test flight the jet. And sure enough, when that jet breaks the sound barrier, it sets off a sonic boom. And if the weather conditions are just so and there's a heavy enough cloud canopy, when that jet breaks that sound barrier, it lets off this thunderous boom that will literally shake the windows in houses. Well, he explained all of that, and I sort of rested a little bit. And in that community, it's a pretty commonplace thing. It's still, when I hear it, it still just makes me a little anxious. I know what it is, but you're not expecting it when it happens. But in a sense, it is our military people saying to the community, we're still here, we're still defending you, we're still doing our duty. And it's a, a way, really, that they communicate with the community uh, there where we are. So now I've told you this, and I began my sermon this way for this reason. In the verses that we have just read, Jesus sounds off a spiritual sonic boom sending shockwaves through the crowd. Envision this. Jesus there on the hillside that day. He is now teaching and he is saying things that absolutely sent shockwaves through the crowd. There is no way that I can accurately or fully describe to you the shock and awe that would have echoed through the audience when Jesus says the things that he does in this Sermon on the Mount. Listen again in particular to verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And at that moment, hearing that, Jewish jaws would have dropped. <laughs> Their eyes would have widened as an expression of disbelief appeared on their face faces. And if I may the windows in the nearby houses would have shook, as it were. And, and, of course, I'm exaggerating some, but hear me, friends. When Jesus said that these uber-religious folks, the scribes and Pharisees, who you think and they themselves think are so godly, so pious, so religious, yet their righteousness isn't righteous enough to enter into heaven? There is simply no way to explain the shudder and tremor that would have caused to the audience. Again, in the mind of the average Jew of Jesus' day, there was no group of people more devout, more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. None more devoted, none more serious, none more solemn. And here is this young, 
itinerant evangelist showing up on the scene saying that the good, the Pharisees and scribes, that their good isn't good enough. The folks sitting on that hillside must have been a lot like me when I first heard that sonic boom. Taken back and unsure of what to make of the situation. Inarguably, they were not prepared to hear this fledgling rabbi say something like this. Folks, this was more than a mic drop moment. This was Jesus dropping a biblical truth bomb. There was, as it was, as it were, there was spiritual fallout as this statement certainly angered the religious elders and further still the folks listening to Jesus They must have needed a moment to let his words settle. And at the risk of redundancy, I simply cannot express to you how shocking these statements, and in particular the one in verse 20, how shocking that it must have been. However, to make sure that you are not under the impression that I'm only talking about something said to a group of people that existed centuries ago and has nothing to do with you. Let me echo the spiritual truth that Jesus makes clear in this message. My friends, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most devout religious person you know, unless your good works, good efforts exceeds that or goes beyond that, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. Or, in slightly different words, those of you who are under the sound of my voice, listen to what King Jesus is saying. Your righteousness isn't righteous enough. Your good isn't good enough. Your best efforts to appease God are not enough to swing open the gates of glory. And here is why. Even on our very best days, doing our very best deeds... Our sacrificial works of service to God are still offered with sin-stained hands. Try, try, try as as you might. You will never, really, never be as devout or committed as the Pharisees were, and still their good wasn't good enough. To enter into the kingdom, we need a perfect righteousness to bring to God. And folks, we cannot attain that on our own. Instead, in order to have a right standing with God, we need a righteousness that is outside of us. It is what the old writers call an alien righteousness. Not something from outer space, but outside of us. 
And if you don't get anything else from this message today, get this. Jesus of Nazareth is the only suitable substitute for sinners who lived in an impeccably sinless life, thereby earning a perfect righteousness before God that we all need. That's who he, he was. That's what he did. And because of this, everybody on that hillside and everybody under the sound of my voice must stop trying to merit God's favor by human efforts. You can't do it. We must stop trying to earn our way to heaven. You can't do it. We must stop trusting in ourselves and fully trust in what Jesus has done for us. And then, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. When we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus, His perfect life of obedience is attributed to us, imputed to us, as our sins were imputed to Him or attributed to Him at the cross. And by grace, through faith, we stand in Christ complete. Clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Redeemer. And then, and only then, can we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now in a sense, I've already preached my message. But don't be so silly as to think that means I'm done. In a sense, I have already made my principal argument from this text. And I think in a sense, this is the principal argument of the entire Sermon on the Mount. It is imperative. I, I'm convinced it is absolutely imperative that we rightly understand the shocking nature of what Jesus is saying, both then and now. One old Bible scholar said this, he said, All men are, by nature, Armenian. And what he meant by that, it is our tendency to think that we can earn favor with God by what we do. And you just can't. You just can't. There's a great big hole in our holiness, to quote another writer. So I know what Jesus said flew in the face of human nature on that hillside, but it continues to fly in the face of people today. We want to think, well, if I just try hard enough or do good enough or, or give enough or sacrifice. God must accept me, but not so. Unless you have perfect righteousness, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. And the only way that you can have perfect righteousness is looking outside of yourself to the finished work of Jesus of Nazareth. Stop trying and start trusting in what Jesus has done. This is not only the main point of my sermon, I believe it was the main point of Jesus' sermon up there on the mountainside. Because only, only after you stop trusting in yourself and believing in what Christ has done in your behalf, then can you cultivate Christian character 
and be salt and light into this world. Now in these verses, Jesus makes clear what the law truly demands and how it is impossible to please God by human efforts. Will you hear me? At the risk of redundancy, if you think you can just be good enough, try hard enough, work diligently enough, or give sacrificially enough that that God will just have to let you into heaven, listen to the teaching of Jesus. Your good isn't good enough. Your righteousness isn't righteous enough. Even the seemingly most zealous religious person among us still miss God's mark of perfection. Only Jesus met it. And to enter into the kingdom, you need that righteous work imputed by faith that the Lord Jesus Christ completed in our behalf. Every single one of us who hope to enter into the kingdom or have entered into the kingdom have done so by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus alone. Now this is something of a long introduction, I realize that, but I believe it is vital that we have that background, that framework, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here in these verses. And I want to now, I want to look at four explanatory remarks made by Jesus in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to notice with me in verse 17, Jesus clarifying His message in His ministry. In verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. This is Jesus clarifying his message in his ministry. Now, sort of get the idea, this is early, the Sermon on the Mount, your pastor taught you this, is relatively early in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's only been at this thing about a year or so when he gathers together this large crowd on that Galilean hillside, and he needs to clarify some things. He's got this large group of people there, and he needs to make some things clear. He needs to make them abundantly clear and he does so with a negative statement do you see that in verse number 17 don't think this way think not don't think this way don't believe this way no not for a minute don't think that I have come to destroy nullify nullify or loosen the law or the prophets that is not what I came to do And I I could mention this, and I'm just going to have to develop it quickly. But I think there are at least three reasons why Jesus begins this section by clarifying His message in His ministry. And those three reasons are this. Because of what He's already said and done. Because of what He is about to say and do. And thirdly, because of how wrong... His hearers were about the law and what it demanded. Now, I need to unpack that a little bit for you. This is Jesus clarifying His message and His ministry. Do not think that I am come to destroy 
the law. So here Jesus is making clear, first, this is not what I'm here to do. This is not why I'm here. This is not why the Father sent me. Now that term law and prophets is just a very broad way in, in Jewish vernacular. It would just meant what we call the Old Testament. It's just a broad term for what we call the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not come to nullify that word destroy can mean to loosen, let go of the law or the prophets. In other words, I've not come to destroy the Old Testament. I've not come to, to set that aside, start over and do something else. That's not what I came to do. And as we sit here with our New Testaments, and we sit here with our New Testament eyes and understanding, we may think, well, duh. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's not what Jesus came to do. But when you think a little bit what Jesus had already said and what Jesus had already done and what he was about to say and what he was about to do and how wrong all of his hearers were about what the law demanded and what God expected from his people, it was necessary that he clarify his message in his ministry. Think about this, Jesus had already gone through the temple the first time and overturned the tables. He had healed on the Sabbath day. In many ways, he had already gone against the grain, already in his ministry, upsetting the religious crowd, doing things that were not customary, going against the tradition of the elders. And that first century Jew, when they saw this, they made a think, this guy's bringing something new, some new aspect to the law, some new way of serving God. But Jesus said, that's not what I'm here for. Let me clear this up. Let me clear the air, if you will. Not only what he had already said and done, but if you will stop for just a moment and think about what he's about to say and do, he needed to clarify what his message and ministry was. As if it wasn't shocking enough to say, blessed are. Jesus is about to say six times in this Sermon on the Mount. Six times. Ye have heard it said, but I say unto you. <laughs> And you've got, to, you've got to get your mind around this. Jesus was not, he, he's making it, I did not come to destroy the law. What I've come to do, not to get too far ahead of myself, is I want to clarify what the law actually teaches, what the law actually demands. You have heard it said this, but are you ready? You've heard wrong. You have heard a misapplication of the law. Six times in these, in these coming verses, Jesus is going to say, you've been taught this, but you've been taught wrong. The way they have told you the way to please God and honor God, what they've told you is wrong. So I'm saying to you, this is right. But before he gets to that, he says, let me clarify something. I've not come to destroy the law. I'm coming to clear up the law. I'm coming to make known what God actually demands from us. And in this, 
you've got to understand the average Jew thought wrong because they'd been taught wrong by the religious leaders and the elders and the scribes. So Jesus says, I didn't come to tear down, destroy, nullify, loosen up the demands of the Old Testament. That is not what I came to do. In a real sense, he's going to get to the heart of the matter, and it is this, that true righteousness, true righteousness is not about external obedience, it's about internal submission. So early in his ministry and in this message, Jesus sought to clarify what he was saying and not saying, and what he was doing and not doing, and what they should recognize as they look forward to the Lamb of God being nailed to a Roman cross, they should have saw He was not coming to destroy, but to fulfill. But to fulfill. So after this negative, what I have not come to do, Jesus now talks about the positive. I've not come to destroy, but fulfill. So notice then with me, Jesus defining His relationship with the law and the prophets. In verse 17 again, Don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Rather than dismissing the law, Jesus says, I'm fulfilling the law. Now, this is going to sound very elementary, but go with me for just a moment. What does it mean to fulfill? I think you need to, when Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law, what does that mean? Well, the word fulfill just means to feel full. That's deep stuff. You better hold on to your pew right there. To feel full. Or rather than leaving empty, Partially filled or undone, Jesus filled full all that the Old Testament demanded. He completed, satisfied, I I like this word, He satiated the law. He satisfied what God righteously demanded of all people. He didn't come to destroy it, He came to live it to do it, to fill it full, to show for us by example and die in our stead, this is what it means to live out what a holy God demands. All that God, through the law, through the prophets, all that He commanded, all that the prophets foretold, Jesus either has fulfilled or He will fulfill. But I want to dig just a little bit deeper than that. Because in that Jewish mindset, and really to us as well, we should understand more about that fulfilling of the law. Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system of sacrifices and offerings. We no longer go to a tabernacle or a temple with an offering, an an animal, to bring to God because Jesus filled full that. He became the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. All of those 
Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, they were shadows. They, they were just simply painting a picture of what Messiah would do. Jesus speaking to those on that hillside, listen to me, I didn't come to destroy that. I came to fulfill that. All that that law pointed towards in that sacrificial system and the bringing of animals, whether it is whether it was bulls or lambs or, or turtle doves or pigeons or whatever that it was. Jesus, I didn't come to nullify that. I didn't come to, 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 to destroy that. I came to show you what that was all about. It was about me. Because you here this morning, you know this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Yet the Hebrew writer also tells us that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, but in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, He is the Passover Lamb. He is that scapegoat. He is a better high priest. He is a better sacrifice. He lived out what they were so clinging to that old orthodox system. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. Soon, Jesus said to that woman in the well, soon, you don't going to have to go to Jerusalem or anywhere else to worship God. You'll worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, he brought an end to, he filled full that sacrificial system. And I want, you to, I want you to think on this. Jesus fulfilled that ancient laws, all of those ancient laws. You know, when you're reading Leviticus, you know, how many times, if we're going to get a little honest with each other this morning, are we trying to read through our Bibles every year and we get lost in Leviticus? That's happened to many of us. And you read about those very curious and strange laws to us that God gave to His people. Do you realize that Jesus didn't come to destroy those things? But He fulfilled those things. In every way that was applicable to Him, He perfectly lived out that civil law that was handed to Israel. If Jesus planted a garden, He didn't put two kinds of seed in the same row. His dietary restrictions were in accordance with the law. The way he dressed in accordance with the law. And what the Jews should have recognized, wait a minute, we're trying to do this and we fail. But he's doing this perfectly in every single way. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And they should have recognized him in perfect obedience to every minute detail of what God said must be done. This is what he did. This is what he lived. And then I press on this moral law. I think you've got to be careful, and I'm trying to be somewhat generic about being too hard and fast, civil, ceremonial, moral. I think you can carry that way, way too far. But to be helpful in this, think also with me that when it comes to the moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, 
Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy that. I came to fulfill it. All of those thou shalt nots, Jesus did not. Everything that the law forbid, he obeyed. He loved God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And there's a sense in which, as Jesus will go through this, that he is saying to them, through his life and through his teaching, you think that you're righteous with God or that the scribes and Pharisees are righteous with God because they haven't committed adultery with their body, but the truth is they've been doing it with their mind. They think they're righteous with God because they haven't murdered another, but they're harboring anger in their heart towards their brother. And again, what they should see is the law wasn't given to make us righteous. The law was given to show us how unrighteous we are. And that Jesus fulfilled that in every way. He always did that which pleased the Father. And so He perfectly and fully fulfilled the moral demands of the law of God. All of those things that we're guilty of, Jesus was not. This is how His righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because He did it from a submissive, yielded heart. It was not about outward appearance or show or a facade. He delighted to do the Father's will. And then he, he, he mentions the law and the prophets. Uh, I'm of the mindset that everything that was required for Jesus to do in his first coming, he could cry from the cross, it's finished. But there's some still things, still some things that the prophets have said Jesus will do. He will do them. He didn't come to destroy those things either. He will fulfill those things. That which the prophets have said, that he's going to return, going to set up a messianic kingdom, all of these things that the law and the prophets have spoken of, Jesus either has or will fulfill. In fact, in verse number 18, you'll notice, Of a truth I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. Now, Jesus is making reference here to a coming day in which this earth will be dissolved or melt away with a fervent heat. Heaven and earth is going to pass as we know it. This earth, this heaven, will be dissolved in the future and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But Jesus says that won't happen till all things, everything, that the Father has said, written, foretold, is perfectly and fully fulfilled in the smallest minutia in detail. I don't have time to get into the whole jod and tittle thing. It just simply comes down to this. In the most minute areas, seemingly or easily overlooked, even in them Jesus has or will fulfill, every detail of what God demanded in the law, He obeyed. Every promise God made through the prophets of what Messiah would do or will do, Jesus will fulfill. Down to the letter. 
You can count on it. Now I've got to throw something in just to help us all a little bit here on verse number 18 because there's some good Christians who don't do a very good job of understanding what Jesus is saying and not saying here. Verse 18 is often used to argue for the preservation of Scripture. That there's not one jot or one tittle that will pass away. But when we read this or study this in its context and what Jesus is actually addressing, this is not about preservation. This is about clarification. This is not about preservation. It is about explanation. Jesus, now listen, I believe in the doctrine of preservation of Scripture. I believe in the doctrine of inspiration. I believe in the doctrine of sufficiency. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about fulfilling what the law has demanded. He is making clear, He is making known, He is explaining that every single detail that God has said you must perform as Messiah, every single minute detail will be fulfilled. Every one. The Truth is, my dear friends, you can rest your minds on this. The end will not come until every jot and tittle of the law and the prophets is perfectly fulfilled by the Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Every minutia will be filled full. So Jesus clarified what he did not come, that he did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He now offers a warning to those who would mishandle the law. And listen to me. If you don't think that Jesus was aiming at the scribes and Pharisees, you're not thinking right. Jesus is king. But as king, he himself subjected himself to his own law. And I think in a sense we can say Jesus took it personally when the religious leaders twisted his law. And he offers a warning here. Get this, because the scribes and the Pharisees, this wasn't a minor offense. This was a major infraction because they were misleading souls. They were telling people by their actions, by their teaching, by their doctrine, by their traditions, by their theology, they were teaching people this is how you please God. But it wasn't right. And there's a sense in which Jesus was a man and this wasn't an easy sermon to preach because he knew this was not going to, quote, go over well. So thirdly, Jesus' warning. See Jesus' warning against misleading others. From verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least. That word break there means to loosen. I think your pastor got into this not long ago. The idea is simply to lower the standard. Here's what the Pharisees, scribes, here's what they did. It would be like me trying to jump over a high bar. In order to, for me 
to jump over a high bar, you're going to have to get it down here pretty low. I, I stopped, went into the gym the other day. It was not exercising, but a gymnasium. And I thought, you know, there was a time when I could jump and touch that rim. I barely got in the net on that basketball goal now. And so, if I may, Jesus is saying, what these Pharisees have done is they realized, I, I, I can't get that high. So let me lower the bar. Let me get it down low enough where I can get over it. And that's what they did over and over and over again with all of the rules, all of the regulations, all of the traditions. They got the standard of God down low enough that they could achieve it in thought that made them right with God and they were wrong. And then they taught others that same thing and they were wrong. They were misleading souls to a path of eternity separated from God. And here Jesus offers a warning. Those who break, who loosen, who, who lower the standard so... So that they can, so they can make it, so that they can feel like they're right with God, will be least in the kingdom. I'm not totally sure what to make of that, but I can tell you this: much, it's not a good thing. As opposed to verse 18, this affirmation: "But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." But hold on, Jesus isn't done. Not only did he warn them about misleading and thereby, I think in a sense, really being excluded from the kingdom, he goes on to say, in verse number 20, that key verse, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom. So notice with me fourthly then, Jesus demanding perfect righteousness. I don't want to restate it, but I, I want to put it back here real quick. Just think how shocking that was for Jesus to say that if you're not more righteous than these people here who went to such extremities in the outward appearance of keeping the law, if you're not more righteous than them, you're not going to enter into the kingdom. In fact, they're the least of the kingdom. I think really Jesus is saying they don't even belong to the kingdom. And here's why. They're not righteous enough. They're not righteous enough. They have these scribes and Pharisees. They've lived by their own interpretation of the law and ignored what the law truly meant or demanded. And they think that they have merited or worked up enough good to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, no, God demands perfection. Your righteousness must exceed their righteousness. Think about how tiring it must have been to be a Pharisee or a scribe. That constant burden and weight of performance. Trying so hard. And we're quick 
to criticize them and in a sense absolutely right for doing so, but there were also souls that were deceived and deceiving. Think about the weight that was on them to try and do that 600 and whatever it is laws that they had come up with. So what they had done is they took the law of God and they built upon it and built upon it and built upon it and built upon it. And before we get too hard on them, we do the same thing. We're very prone to do the same thing. And if we're not careful, we live in a very performance-based Christianity thinking that we can appease God by what we do and don't do and dress and don't dress and eat and don't eat and all of these things. But Jesus says, listen, your goodness has got to be pure, holy, and perfect before God. And it never will be. And I think as these men continue to make their way through this sermon, you're going to see that what Jesus says is simply not attainable. What Jesus demands, what God demands, is simply not attainable in these fallen bodies. We're sinners. And even our best efforts are tainted by sin. In Romans 10... Paul wrote these words. Let me read these to you. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. It's interesting. I've got to quit here in a minute, but it's interesting that Romans 10 right there falls right on the heels of Romans 8 and 9. It really is. In chapter 8 and 9 where he lays out those beautiful golden chains of salvation in, in chapter 10, what we call chapter 10, he begins with, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Romans 10, 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now listen, this is, this is Paul describing himself before conversion and the Pharisees and scribes who are still trying to appease God through their own righteousness. Listen, Romans 10 verse 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Jesus says, Let me make clear what God demands you can't do, but I've come to fulfill it. I am here to fulfill it for you. Don't trust in you. You can't do it, but I will. And my dear friends, I implore you. I implore you. Don't try. Earn your way. Merit your way. Work your way. You can't do it. Trust in Christ. Our righteousness, who earned and merited for us what we must need and what we must have if we are to enter into the kingdom of God. Trust Him. Put your faith in Him and in Him alone. Christ, our righteousness. Thank you, my brother.